Let's pray together. Oh, God, it may be a blizzard outside, but the warmth of your spirit is indoors today with us. And we thank you. You surely have a word for us. Lord, let it be clear. Hide this little voice and you speak as only you can. In Jesus' name, we wait on you. Amen. Have you noticed this? Everybody loves to cheer when everybody else is cheering. I'm talking about Vladimir Zelensky, the president of Ukraine. You saw a joint session of Congress this week, and the man is a rock star. There's just one, one ovation after another. Bipartisan, bicaramel, as they say, ovations. And he was loving it. But you know what? The whole audience, they were loving it. Why? Because everybody loves to cheer when everybody is cheering, which is why I'm awestruck by the Magi. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about those philosophers slash astrologers, what do you want to call them? It doesn't matter. That they were willing, get this, they were willing to risk their reputations, their careers, for what? A moving star and an ancient prophecy? Honey, I'm, I'm leaving. Yo, how long are you going to be gone? I don't know, maybe a year or so. And they're gone. Unbelievable. A moving star. Come on, let's go to that story. Matthew, the New Testament opens with it. Matthew chapter 2. You're finding it in your Bible. I'm in the NIV. This blizzardy Christmas, glorious Christmas Eve, worshiping Jesus. We're wrapping it up right now. The most glorious worship of all. I'm really, I'm really jazzed to share with you the one truth that I hope you go home with. But first, let's go to the story. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. And after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, excuse me, do you understand that is the only line the Magi speak in this entire narrative? And I want to walk up to them and I want to say, hey, fellas, did you forget to do your little political science, uh, you know, background check stuff before showing up in town? Do you have any idea about this hothead, insecure king named Herod, a a half-Jew and Roman puppet, and you're walking around town saying, where's this new king? Are you serious? And by the way, did you say we have come to worship the king of the Jews, you pagan Gentiles, give me a break. Something's wrong with this picture, gentlemen. And Herod knew something was wrong with this picture. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and I never saw this line until this week, and all Jerusalem with him. Why should they be disturbed? I never saw that line before. Till this week, and I've preached from this passage several times. Ah, could it be the citizenry fear the possibility of a potential bloody coup, another dark civil war? 
And when he had called together all the people's chief priests, not his, all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. Let me insert a sidebar here from Desire of Ages. Do you mind? Herod suspected the priests of plotting with the strangers, talking about the Magi, to excite a popular tumult and unseat him. Did I say he was insecure? Unseat him from the throne. But this inquiry from the usurper of the throne and made at the request of strangers, these pagan Gentiles, stung the pride of the Jewish teachers. Pride is always our downfall. Always. I don't care what career you're in, it's always your downfall. The indifference with which they turned to the roles of prophecy enraged the jealous tyrant. He thought them trying to conceal their knowledge of the matter, and with an authority they dared not disregard, he commanded them to make close search and to declare the birthplace of their king, their expected king. Tell me now where he's to be born. You're not leaving here until you do. So... They get their voices all right. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied. For this is what the prophet has written, the prophet Micah. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That prophecy, you've got to admit, has Messiah written all over it. Why? When you're talking about the hometown of little David, play on your harp. The... Messiah's father, because one day there will be a son of David. And where do you think he's going to be born? Same town. Messiah, all over it. But the question that occurs to the prelates, to the clerics, I wonder if he's been born. No. Great controversy, the apocalyptic classic. With profound and reverent interest, the elders of Israel should have been studying the place, the time, the circumstances of the greatest event in the world's history, the coming of the Son of God to accomplish the redemption of man. All the people should have been watching and waiting that they might be among the first to welcome the world's Redeemer. Instead, they are the last. Makes you wonder, will it happen again? I'm talking about the elders and the teachers, the professors and the pastors, mute, silent about what they believe, not breathing a word on the eve of the Messiah's second coming, just going about business as usual. That's what I'm getting paid to do, occupy my class lectern, keep the kids engaged. Come on, preacher. Talking to you, pastor. Why aren't you saying more about this? I wonder sometimes if we too have become distracted, we who call ourselves Adventists. But not Herod. He's not missing a beat. Then Herod called the Magi secretly, shh, and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared over Iraq. And he sent them to Bethlehem. And he said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, you report to me so that I too, I want to go and worship him. Yeah, right. 
And after they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And I just love this line. And when they saw the star, they were what? They were overjoyed. The Greek reads literally, they rejoiced with an exceedingly mega joy. We have not been wrong. We have not been following cunningly devised fables. The prophet was right. The prophecy is true. Wow. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And on coming into the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and they worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned, shh, in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. It occurs to me that in this nativity vignette, where you and I have just gazed upon these magi on their faces before a child, it occurs to me that embedded in this narrative is the most glorious of all truths about worship. You see, you and I have been on a journey since Thanksgiving, a little holiday journey, mini-series, thinking about worship together. That great truth is captured in a single word. If you could guess the word, I'm going to tell you there are 14 letters in it. If you can guess the word right now, you can come up here and finish this sermon. <laughs> 14 letters in one word? Come on. 14 letters in one word. Ah, I'm not going to wait. Let's do it. Christocentric. Ooh, that's one of those $10 words you say. What's it mean? Well, it's really not hard. You can see it. Christ in the center. Christocentric. Begins with the name of Christ. Christianity is Christocentric. Christ is in the center. Christmas is Christocentric. Christ is supposed to be in the center. Not much in this Christian nation. So they say, Christian that is. Christos, Christocentric. So what's that have to do with this? Everything. Having Christ in the center therefore means it's all about Jesus, true or false? Well, it has to be. It has to be. So when we say worship needs to be Christocentric, what we're really saying is worship needs to be all about Jesus. Whether you do it in this space, once a week, or in your private worship space called a prayer closet, seven days a week. It doesn't matter. Worship must, it's designed to be Christocentric, all about Jesus. You say, why? And I was hoping you'd ask that. Because this is, and I've had to work through this, and I'm going to ask you to just kind of check it out with me. And I want to tell you why, and I think it's a significant reason, and it's not an obvious one. Because God, here we go, God needs a human face mm -hmm. to get close to us. He needs a human face, and Jesus is that face. True or false? This, this makes sense to me. Okay, so far we're okay. Not just back in Bethlehem, by the way, but in Berrien right now. He needs a human face. You think about it. If God had remained invisible... Transcendent. That's why another one of those $10 words they use in the seminary. Transcendent. Uh, beyond our reach. 
beyond our recall, beyond our familiarity. I cannot be approached by you. If God had maintained that, we would never have learned how to love Him back. Because you can't love back a word. You can't love back an idea. You can't love back a name. You can't love back a a symbol. You can't love back a manger or a cross. God needed a baby face. He needed a baby face for a reason. What's the reason, Dwight? Come on, you know it. And the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means, what does it mean? God is with us. God with us. God has a baby face so He can get up close and personal to us and so that we can get up close and personal to Him. That's the door worship opens. James K.A. Smith, the Christian philosopher up the road in Calvin College, Calvin Seminary, very bright uh, evangelical philosopher, has written a trilogy on worship, Culture, theology. I have all three. The first book is titled Desiring the Kingdom. See what this bright mind suggests. To be human is to love. And it is what we love that defines who we are. So we're not talking about trivial loves. No. Like when we say we love pizza or the Boston Red Sox. He meant New York Yankees. We're not even quite talking about significant loves like when we say we love our parents or or we love a spouse, though these will be wrapped up with the sort of love we're concerned with. Rather, we're talking about ultimate. That's his emphasis. We're talking about ultimate loves, what we desire above all else, that to which we ultimately pledge allegiance. Keep reading. Or to evoke language that is both religious and ancient, our ultimate love is what we worship. Whoa, what's he saying? We've been wired for ultimate love. That's what he's saying. We've been wired for worship. And God longs to be the ultimate love of our hearts and our minds. Not only so that His love can be accessible to us, but so that our love might be available to Him. This is a two-way street, folks. The British writer Charles Williams, the Inklings, you might remember C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, they were a group of writers that would get together regularly. They called themselves the Inklings. They were heavily influenced by Charles Williams, so James K.A. Smith tells us. There are five obscure little books that Williams wrote. Smith has taken those books and he says, there's something here. I'm going to share it with you. So this is Charles Smith, middle of the 20th century, first part of the 20th century. He's he's describing and he's arguing that the human experience of romantic love, and everybody here knows what romantic love is, whether you are romantic right now or not. The the human experience of romantic love is itself a testimony to to the desire for God that, that, that there is, he would champion, a theology of romance. Now here comes Williams, undiluted. Charles Williams, any occupation exercising itself with passion. Now, he's going to, what, he's, what he's meaning is, what he means is anything we do as humans, okay? Anything. I'm going to pick something so for, the, for the sake of illustration. Uh, cooking Christmas dinner. 
There are some people that, can, that live for that. Not to eat it, but to create it. Because it's a gift. They, it's, it's just with joy. Now he says, even that, now watch this. Any occupation like cooking Christmas dinner, exercising itself with passion. Oh, I'm loving on this. With self-oblivion. I'm not doing this to get some kind of credit for me. I'm doing this because I'm loving on my family right now, and they're going to love. They're going to just, oh, they're going to sit back and relish this. So if it's done with passion, with self-oblivion, it's not about me, with devotion, you just keep coming back to it. No, I'm not giving up. You just keep coming back to it. Towards an end other than itself. This is not about just so that I got this great Christmas dinner. No, the end is we are drawn together through this. Any occupation like that is a gateway to divine things. Gateway to God. Now keep, keep reading. Thus, a lover contemplating in rapture the face of his lady or a girl listening in joy to the call of the beloved are worshipers in the hidden temples of our Lord. God temples, God tabernacles in everyday human life. And he says, because you love this, this is where I'm coming at you, girl. I'm coming at you, boy, because I know this is, just, this is your passion. You're loving on this. And I'm loving that you're loving on it because this is my access to your mind. This is my access to your heart. You love doing what you do. And that makes me love connecting. Wow. It's an interesting thought. And that's why I'm going to suggest that God was born with a baby face so that we can actually draw near and love him back. And that's why in worship, listen now, this is where rubber meets the road. That's why in worship, we can see Jesus in our minds when we worship him. If it's Christocentric and it's all about Jesus, you can see Jesus in your mind. Dwight, what does his face look like? I don't know. I see him all the time. I don't know. I don't, I, don't, I don't jot something down. Was that a beard or was, that, was he beardless? I, I, it's not that. But you see him. You see him in your mind. There are times when I can see the nail prints right here in his hands and I'm just overwhelmed with what those nail prints signify. And, and I get swept away. I see it. There are times when you will sense Jesus in your presence. And that'll be the work of the third person of the Godhead because Jesus physically cannot be with you and physically be with me. So the Holy Spirit covers for him. But Jesus is there because his mind is plugged into you and this moment when you're worshiping. We treat worship so bad. No big deal. It's a huge deal. God has designed worship so that we come, we come into the face of the baby face, the, ba- the, the presence of the baby-faced one. We see Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Our hearts are drawn out. We start talking to him. We do. Dear Jesus. Our little children, we teach them, dear Jesus. When they pray right here, dear Jesus. Why do we teach them? Because that's the face of worship. We want you to sense and see Jesus. Ah, come on, how's it work? We love him because he first loved us. You know the way I've been impatient this week and God is lo- God's love for me has been so patient? Man, I want to worship him. I want to come into his house. I come in response. We love him because he first loved us, of course, of course. 
God has a baby face. Here's my point. So that when we worship Him, we see Jesus. That's it. Hey, didn't Jesus say just before He died, if you have seen me, whom have you seen? You've seen the Father. That's what it's all about. You look at me. I'll teach you about God. And that's why worship has been designed by God to be Christocentric. It's all about Jesus. And when it's all about Jesus, it becomes all about God. Because remember, there's one gift you can give God that He doesn't have. He owns the whole universe. He's not looking under your tree for a gift today. He's not looking under the tree, not tonight, not tomorrow. There's only one gift you can give God that He doesn't have. You know what it is? I'll remind you. We looked at this earlier, but I'll remind you. The only gift that you can give to God is your worship. When, like the Magi, you go to your knees in His presence and your heart is going to Him, you're loving Him back as you go to your knees, that's the gift I want because it's from your heart. You can't fake it. Sitting here doesn't mean you're giving your heart to Jesus at all. It just means the family said you had to come. Come on. No. It has to come from here. But when you give here, he said, man, I never had that gift before because you're the only one that has it. You're the only one that has it. What are you going to give him? We're going to spontaneously. That's what we're going to give him. We're going to love him back. That's what worship is about, loving him back. It was, it was the day before Christmas. Busily wrapping packages, mother calls her boy and asks if he would please shine her shoes. A few minutes later, with a proud smile that only a seven-year-old can muster, he presents the shiny shoes to his mother. And she is so, pr- she is so proud of him, she reaches in her purse and she gives him a quarter. The next morning, Christmas, she's getting ready to put on her shoes to go to church. When in the toe of one of the shoes, there's something there. She takes the shoe back off. She shakes it. Falling into her hands is a piece of paper wrapped around a quarter. And on the piece of paper, scrawled by a child, are the words, I done it for love. I done it for love. I ask you, is there a greater reason for worship than that? I done it for love. I just done it for love. That's God to you. And that's you to God. 